Welcome to another episode of the Great Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Michael Maroney, the director of FACET. And today I am here with Sarah Rose Cavanaugh. She's a psychologist and senior associate director for teaching and learning at Simmons University and author of three highly interesting books, The Spark of Learning, Hive Mind, and her latest book, I think I have that right, which is Mind Over Monsters. And I'm really thrilled to have you here today, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And thank you for having me. Yeah, um, I, I was also fortunate to get to see you a few weeks ago at, at a workshop, and um, that that just uh, insp- really inspired me to have oh, this conversation you. with you. And I'm so glad you were you were able to to make this work. Um, well, so let's just jump right in here. Um, mm-hmm. Your your latest book really it, it deals with. Um, mental health crisis. And you've got this phrase in there uh, about how teaching and learning in, in this mental health crisis uh, interplay. And it, you talk about compassionate challenge. Right. Um, and so I'm going to make the assumption that you see this mental health crisis as one of the grand challenges that we're facing uh, in the university, uh, in university education this day, and not probably also in K-12, I'm assuming. Um, right. Yeah. And so uh, this notion of compassionate challenge, I, I really gravitated towards even just the phrase, phrasing of it. Could you tell me a little bit about how you landed in this space? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So a couple different paths to landing in this space, I think one that I do a lot of reading and listening in the higher ed circuits, and I just really saw this increasing tension between folks who on the one hand were arguing that for students to be better engaged and to help solve the mental health crisis, that students needed greater challenge, that they needed, that we needed a return to rigor, that things had gotten too flexible Mm. through the pandemic years, and that that was part of the problem, and that to really motivate and stimulate the intellect of our students, we needed more challenge in the classroom. And then the folks who I spent a lot more time with uh, who were arguing for pedagogies of care, for greater compassion, for greater flexibility, and a lot of kind of dueling op-eds and Mm -hmm. and kind of some uh, rancor on Twitter (laughs) and other places where I really think that both of these parties are really motivated to care for students and Mm -hmm. students' growth. And that what we need is the intersection of these two things, right? We need both compassion and we do need challenge. And I think the other major path to this was my own journey. And so I was someone who did struggle pretty significantly with anxiety and the form of uh, regular panic attacks in college. And it was really my women's studies classrooms, I was a minor in women studies, which is now usually gender and cultural studies these days. And those classrooms were incredibly compassionate and incredibly warm and community-based, but they also required quite a lot of participation and discussion, Mm -hmm. which terrified me as an undergraduate. But in this setting where there was both compassion and challenge, I kind of find my, found my own voice and was really instrumental in my development, not just as a student and a scholar, but also as a human being. And so those two kind of paths led me to this compassionate challenge. 
Yeah, there, there, there's so much, so much in that. First of all, I want to tell you that I have a personal bias to or relationship with this feeling of, of being in the college classroom and being mm-hmm. terrified of having to speak. Yeah. Um, and when I was in college, I would literally drop classes if I found out that we had to do any kind of public speaking in there. Um, and it was only through um, going to court my first time as a lawyer that it was like, mm. I have to put that aside. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, 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 I was forced into it more or less. Um, so th- this notion of, of, of you, of grappling with, um, I, I mean, it's, it, it, there's like insecurity and, and the feeling of a lack of safety. Um, mm-hmm. but then also this idea and the kind of the popular press and uh, about, well, we need to, we need to challenge students. We need to be rigorous and they're both right. <laughs> I guess right, right. is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. And I love, yeah. uh, Kevin Gannon, who uh, you may be familiar with, he does a lot of writing and speaking in this space as well. I love, he has a piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education where he talks about the fact that, yes, we need rigor and challenge, but what we need is intellectual, cognitive rigor Mm -hmm. and challenge. Mm -hmm. And so often what rigor translates to is logistical challenges, just making it more difficult for students to succeed and how I'm going to grade your margins folks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and so, yes, let's have cap challenge. Uh, but the challenge needs and should be intellectual and cognitive and motivational rather than logistical. And and I know, I know that in, in, kind of general descriptions of the book. I, I love this. They say, we need to guide our youth into practices that encourage challenge, helping them face their fears in an encouraging, safe, and even playful way. I mean, that's like on mm-hmm. Goodreads. That's on, <laughs> everyone's grabbing that that kind of um, quote about mm-hmm. about what you're suggesting in this book. And, I, and I, I'd love to like kind of dissect that a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. Um, if, if, if you, if you're willing to go along the ride here, sure. <laughs> so, um, w- when, when we talk about, when we talk about, um, encouraging challenge, how do you see that as happening is relating to this kind of safe, playful, safe and mm-hmm. playful in particular? Right. Well, I think that we, if we're truly going to rise to challenges and face our fears, we, we need that safety. So to take the safety part for part first, and then we can talk about playfulness. Um, and I dig into the book a little bit, the study uh, from biology of play in animals and in learning in animals and the fact that animals use play and to learn things as kind of experimental right? Uh, testing out new scenarios, new situations, and how you might respond. But all of that stops if there's harsh conditions, if the, if there's safety violations, if the animal does not feel relaxed, then play and learning kind of abruptly stops and, and all of your attention and your resources get dedicated to making sure that you stay safe and kind of self-protection. And so we all need, I think, that grounding of of feeling secure and feeling like it is a safe place to make mistakes. It's a safe place to take risks, that you are in community, that you have belongingness and in order for you to face your fears, uh, in order for you to do something that feels risky and challenging and difficult. And so I think that safety comes first and compassion comes first always. And that 
you know, this work is very often done in the classroom context, I think in those first few weeks where you're getting to know your students, you're building community between students and among students. And once you have that sort of grounding, then we can move on to the challenge piece. And this is all also very consistent with trauma-informed pedagogy in which that grounding and that safety needs to be established right from the beginning. And, but I think that once we have laid that foundation, then we can encourage our students to do things that make them maybe a little uncomfortable, that make them look at the world a little bit differently, that, uh, that, that do involve risk. And I think that one of the best ways to do that is to play. And I think mm. that, again, the animals, I think, play in order to learn and that humans are no different. We are also animals. And I really like to think about the classroom as kind of a sandbox where okay. this is a place where you can experiment and try things out that don't have dire consequences, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that are and that are sometimes sort of fun. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. you know, we're absolutely motivated by things that are pleasurable as well. Yeah, I was talking to a colleague the other, uh, just, just yesterday about the fact that um, he's, he's a newer instructor. Mm -hmm. And this is the first semester where he has students laughing in his class. Uh, and, and I got to, I got to be in his class and I, I, and I was like, wow, that was just, you're doing such a great job with them. Mm -hmm. You really have them along the ride, along the ride with you. And he, and, and he's like, yeah, and they're laughing. I'm like, yeah. And he's got someone tracking how much they're laughing. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of interesting, cute. but yeah, I, 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 I like that. I like that idea a lot of, of how play and enjoyment is part of this, um, a couple of things I'd love to drill down on a little bit is this first few weeks when we're, we're trying to get to this place where students feel safe or, or brave uh, mm -hmm. to, to participate. Um, I think that, I think a lot of it has to do with trust and developing trust. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I wonder, I wonder if there are certain things that you would suggest around kind of developing that trust. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that we trust each other when we're reliable. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think being reliable uh, is important. I think also being, um, I think frequency and speed of communication is critical for building trust. And that's really tricky given how overloaded faculty are right now. Um, but I do think that students read you know, responsivity to emails and, and messages as as a piece of building trust uh, and that we're working together and that you're here to help me succeed. Um, I think that setting boundaries on that is important uh, because I'm not suggesting that uh, instructors be available to their students 24 seven <laughs> and yeah. immediately res you know, respond within a two hour window, no matter what time those messages are sent. But I think that being transparent about those boundaries and say, saying, you know, I do not respond to emails within these hours, but mm -hmm. I will respond to you within this time frame, so that students have that transparency and that sense of reliability yeah, expectations. Exactly, exactly. I think that that's important. I think that uh, I've done some qualitative interview studies of students uh, and their, you know, experiences in the classroom. And one thing that comes through very clearly from them is how an instructor responds once a student does participate 
you know, and whether there's a warmth there, whether they, you know, if they make a mistake, if the instructor reframes that in a positive way, uh, what, and they see that as very critical to whether they're going to participate again. Um, and so I think that that is a, a big part of trust as well, that kind of responsibility. Yeah. So you, if, you, if you're asking students to participate, then you need to kind of honor that participation mm -hmm. and view it in the most positive light possible. Kind yes. of, that's, that's kind yep. of what I hear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually had a, a, a awful experience when I was in law school where I'm trying to get over this fear and I, and I, I get called on when well, you have to stand in law school, you've seen mm -hmm. that in all the movies. And I come up with an analysis and the per professor just rips me apart. Yeah. Right. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was <You're> awful. <laughs> <laughs> and it, yeah. And it happens. I think um, those of us who are, you know, very student centered instructors think, oh, no instructor is going to do that, but it happens. It happens. happens mm -hmm. <laughs> it definitely, mm -hmm. definitely happens. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I mean, this idea of reliability and, and communication, transparent communication, warmth. I mean, that all makes a lot of sense to me because mm -hmm. it's kind of this blend of competence and warmth. And I think that there's research on that. If you've got both of those, then then yeah. you're a lot more likely to have uh, good relationships with with um, people. Um so the other, the other thing that I think is that I wanted to kind of come at this with is this idea of challenge, because uh, we know that all our students really come to our classes prepared in different ways and with different mm -hmm. strengths and different weaknesses. And I'm wondering how we how we can um, kind of individualize our classes in ways that challenge all our students appropriately. Right. Um, well, I will start out by saying kind of acknowledging that what I'm going to say might be particular to smaller classes. <laughs> okay. I think this is okay. one Fair. of the reasons why um, when we're putting together courses and curriculums that, you know, smaller classes, whenever possible, are better. And mm -hmm. because if you're teaching, you know, 100, 200, 500, <laughs> as, you know, faculty do sometimes, students individualizing the challenge level is going to be nearly impossible. Yeah. Um, I mean, other than using ed tech to like, you know, uh, create practice quizzes that have different levels of challenge, there's not mm -hmm. much you can do to, to personalize. But where possible, I'm lucky enough that I teach pretty small classes at Simmons. I have 25 students. Um, where possible, I think that it is great <clears throat> to kind of individualize the level of challenge. And I think that this is one of the areas where folks who are using ungrading or mm -hmm. other alternative grading techniques, where a lot of the power of those techniques comes in. I had, uh, I ran a faculty learning community last year with eight faculty at Simmons who were experimenting in various different ways with some kind of change to their grading to be more motivating and equitable. Mm -hmm. And one or two of the instructors went full on grading for mm -hmm. those listeners who might not be familiar with this concept. It's a process of alternative, alternatively grading your students that varies instructor to instructor. They still get a grade usually at the end of the term, but it can be portfolio based. You're usually giving just tons of feedback rather than numerical or letter grades along the way. There's often some conferences mid-semester and at the end of the semester and students and faculty together are collaboratively deciding on what that 
end semester letter grade will be. And one of the instructors shared with our group that one of the things that he loved about ungrading his graduate level course was that he could be way more challenging for students that he mm. felt and he could individualize that level of challenge. And so he felt when he had to give them a number on every assignment that he found himself just justifying, you know, points lost right. and, and right. coming up with uh, and kind of defending Which himself. is like the opposite <laughs> of what you want to do. You want to say, here's where you are. This is how much you've learned. Exactly. Of, this is what you lost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But he, but he felt that when he wasn't attaching a number or a letter to the assignments, he could be more challenging. He could have higher expectations mm -hmm. for his students because the sky's the limit. He just right. wants them to, to achieve and to learn and, and to develop those skills. And so it, he, and his feedback could really push them uh, to greater heights of learning when he wasn't giving them a grade. And he also felt that when he was doing the number and letter grades, he also, there was the whole notion of fairness and, you know, yeah. kind of equalizing things across participants, uh, not participants, uh, my research side, so students, <laughs> but, um, but when he was ungrading, he could really tailor the feedback, like, because he would get to know the students where they were at in their academic journey with this particular set of skills and, and kind of tailor the challenge to them. I mean, that makes, that makes a lot of sense if you can do it. And like you said, mm -hmm. there's a, there's a problem in the, some of the larger classes with doing this. I think that I've seen some people use some flipped class techniques mm -hmm. um, where they've got a lot of AI, you know, assistant instructors circulating and, and helping with some of the activities I've seen that and I've seen it work pretty well, but you can't do that every day. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Those big classes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, one of the things that I love about this notion of compassionate challenge is it, 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 um, it anchors the challenge on the, you know, helping the individual, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's there to help that individual. And it, it makes me think of the Chichen Mahai flow idea. Where yeah. if we're challenging our students appropriately, then they get into this flow state and they can work for hours and lose mm -hmm. track of time. And and one of the things that, that that he said that always stuck out for me stuck out for me is that um, we can imagine the flow state as being happiness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and so I I really like the idea of the the challenge piece. Now we're, you're coming at this from this is how we help our students in this mental health crisis thinking about it from that perspective it's so interesting that he's coming at it from this 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 um happiness perspective yeah yeah so well, I, I yeah well i think you know i was very tried to be very careful in the book to emphasize that i'm not a clinical psychologist i'm an academic psychologist mm -hmm. and that instructors for the most part are not any kind of psychologist, right. uh, never mind a clinical psychologist, and it's not our role to be clinicians in the classroom, and that they're what we can contribute as instructors rather than trying to um, address mental health problems is to build mental health um, in the classroom. And I think that the literature on well-being and what makes people happy and what makes people satisfied with their lives are things like regular positive emotions, mm -hmm. having a purpose or feeling that there's a meaning to your life, belongingness and relatedness to other human beings and working on and achieving goals. 
And I think all of those components are components of a really well-run classroom, right? Yeah. We're in community with each other, hopefully having some regular positive emotions. We're working on shared goals, establishing a sense of meaning. And so I think that's the role of instructors is to build up well-being and to build up mental health on campus through a really well-run classroom. So I don't, so that's how, so it's not so surprising to me that I'm saying a similar thing as related yeah. to happiness. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting uh, that, that, that these the two things come together like that, at least in, in my, my reading of it. Um, I, you had this other quote in your book. Uh, I actually you were quoting somebody, I think, who said, life is exposure therapy. <laughs> yep. I uh, love that quote. I love that quote. I think about classes where, um, like presentation classes, where people do come in with a lot of anxiety. And mm -hmm. I've taught some of those classes where if, if, they, if they throw themselves in and they present and present and present and they have lots of opportunities, by the time you get to the end of the semester, you've got this confident presenter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so um, when, when we think about exposure therapy as part of course design, um, how, how, I mean, how do you see those coming together? Right. Well, I, I love that quote. It's from a, a friend and a colleague, Ryan Glode, who is a clinical counseling psychologist and who primarily does exposure therapy with adolescents uh, suffering from anxiety disorders. And I was saying to him what I just said to you. Uh, so I was interviewing him and I, I was saying my thing about we're not clinicians. We shouldn't be doing exposure therapy in the classroom. And he was like, well, <laughs> um, and and so that was his point was that, yes, we shouldn't be confronting students with anxiety disorders, with things that they're afraid of in the classroom, that that would be very inappropriate, but that in his perspective, life is just a series of kind of stretching out your neck and, you know, exposing yourself to something you've never experienced before, seeing that things worked out okay and feeling more confident the next time. And that, you know, the first time we get in a car with our adolescent. I have recently been doing a lot of exposure therapy because I have a teenager who was driving for the first time. And let me tell you, like sitting in that seat that first time with her behind the wheels, terrifying. Too close to the curb or too close to the middle. <laughs> oh, it's terrifying. Yes. Um, but life is full of those moments, right? Yeah. And and the classroom's not an exception. The right. And so we should be again establishing that safe setting but we do ask students to take hopefully cognitive risks hopefully intellectual risks hopefully we're not asking students to really risk themselves but it is one of those arenas in life where we are experiencing things for the first time and hopefully building confidence as we go yeah it makes me think of the um you know strategic use of formative assessment and low stakes mm -hmm. assessment and yes. giving students multiple opportunities to, to try things before you really test them. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And, and that, 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 that's, I mean, that makes sense uh, for a well-designed class that you'd have those opportunities uh, in the class and you could do that in a big class too. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you might have to, the grading can become a bit of a, a bit, mm -hmm. bit difficult in a big class. So you have to kind of plan for that. But um, yeah, yeah, I've talked to some folks who, who do that in big classes. Um, so we've talked a little bit about uh, kind of scalability in, 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 some, in some ways. And, and, um, and I, I really appreciated that acknowledgement that it's a little bit easier to do this in, 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 in the smaller 
and mm-hmm. the smaller classes. Um, but I think one of our challenges moving forward is how do we scale this out to the bigger classes? Because because yeah. because this compassionate challenge really we need that mm-hmm. in all of our all of our students' classes. Um, one other thing I was curious about here is uh, it, the relationship to this and um, DEI mm-hmm. and DIJ and belonging, and it seems highly related to that. How would you how would you describe the relationship? Absolutely. So I think that what is important there is some people read about inclusive teaching practices and and feel that it's enough to just be welcoming. You know, of course I'm welcoming, you know, all all of the different voices in my classroom, but the importance of instead having intentionality and building structures to to make sure that those voices are solicited rather than this kind of passive acceptance. Um, And I think that there's this wonderful work being done here by Viji Sathi and Kelly Hogan and Tracy Addy and her colleagues um, on what those structures could look like and what that intentionality can look like. And I think that building those out in your course structure is highly important. And um, rather than just this kind of passive, you know, I, I want I, all, all of us students to be part of this this community and this conversation yeah there's like this intentionally building of a, a context that, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, I, I saw Mary Mary Murphy was work on a panel and she called it a belonging context yeah and you can do that mm-hmm. if you plan for mm-hmm. it and, and so I, I, I appreciate what you're what you're saying there um, so one one fi- one final question for you do you, and it could come from your teaching or any anybody te- anybody's teaching who you know. Um, do you have like a favorite activity you've seen someone do in the classroom? Just in general, yeah, favorite yeah, like activity. Th- that, that kind of reflects the, the 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 what what you've written about. So this isn't a particular activity, but it is a class that I witnessed that I was really moved by that I think really has the elements of both compassion and challenge. So one of the things that I do in my role at Simmons is teaching observations and small group uh, student feedback sessions for various faculty. And a faculty member who's teaching a language class, an introductory language class invited me in. And what was remarkable to me was that she cold called which I, I feel that that practice has you know, gotten much on the line and also kind of fallen out of favor. I don't know that many instructors uh, who, who still practice you know, pure cold calling. And our Simmons University students are, they tend to be, because we're, I think we're a women's focused institution that's small and, and is known for its really student focused teaching, our students are the sort who wouldn't like cold calling. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, they, they come to us, I think, because they're looking for a, a kind of a safe community. Yeah. But she did it. And when I did the small group, and I'll describe her practice in a moment, but when I did the small group work with the students, I expected to hear that they hated it or that they were uncomfortable, at least from a few students. But they all mentioned it as, as a 
core wonderful part of their classroom experience and part of it was again the compassion and the warmth with which she did it um so the class was conducted in a language i do not speak and so i didn't really know what was going on but (laughs) uh in terms of the conversation pieces but she called on pretty much every single student uh, in the classroom in that half hour. And again, with that responsivity when they contributed, whether they were correct or incorrect, um, and, and in ways that built upon their relationships with each other. And it was really beautiful. And the students could not say enough glowing things about the class when I did the small group work with them. And yeah, I, I was, I don't cold call. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And I, th- and I thought maybe I should, like, I don't know if I could do it as well <laughs> as her, but um, I was really moved by that. And I really feel like it was both compassionate and challenging. And so what, what, what was the, about the way she did it? So as you mentioned warmth, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm assuming that what this means is that if people didn't get the right answer, that she pulled other people into the conversation to help get to the right mm-hmm. answer and, yes and, yes yeah. partly that and and partly it was also demeanor and I have to say mm. I almost every time I do keynotes and workshops and things I get the question about isn't a lot of what you're recommending super gendered uh and mm. and aren't um women faculty and especially women faculty of color are I don't you know, they already have this burden of, of being the mental health resource for students and students having expecting that kind mm-hmm. of warmth. But I have to say that that was part of it, like part of it was her gentleness. Um, okay. it, like it, it was just it, everything. Just, it, there was just this calmness in the classroom. And she just had this very like flowy, modulated, yeah. <laughs> motherly. Okay. I mean, I don't know. I um, I don't know if the same. She practice... could pull it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't know if the same practice. Uh, someone with different set of identities. Um, you know, she was also a white woman. Uh, would be had the same level of receptivity from the students. I'm not sure, but um, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. So um, I I cold call, mm-hmm. um, and I do it pretty early in the semester. Uh, I call it um, metacognitive questioning, mm-hmm. and basically when I ask a question, um, then I, I a student who's willing to answer. So that I, I pick I pick the person who's willing to answer, and but then I always follow up the question with, "How sure are you? Zero percent mm-hmm. to one hundred percent." And then they have to think about, uh, well, was I really sure when I said that or was <laughs> I, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, a lot of times they'll just say, well, I thought I was hundred percent, but I'm really not. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's talk about the part you feel sure about. Let's talk about the part you feel unsure about. And then that leads to being able to pull other people into the conversation. And I ask yeah. them the same questions. And what happens is after a day or two, even really the first day, um, People love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what the students said, is that especially those students who wanted to participate, they would say things like, I, I want to participate in my classes, but I feel so unsure and I don't know when I like, <clears throat> but she just makes it so easy and and it's just going to happen and it just, so it becomes natural. And I yeah. think that you're saying <clears throat> that it should happen from the beginning is really important. There's um, some work by a sociologist, Jay Howard, on on discussions in the college classroom. 
And he really talks about the social norms of a classroom and that if you're going to do something like this, you need to do it from the first day that mm. you are establishing these. This is the set of social norms that operate in this particular classroom. This is what you can expect um, rather than. Interesting. You know, I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us oh, today. Um, and I, I, I can't say how much I appreciate um, all of the all the writing that you've done about affect and uh, in the classroom and the importance of helping our students with their mental health. Um, and I guess all I can say is keep it up because I think it's <laughs> it's super important that that people learn more and more about this and, and pull this into their teaching practice. Today we've been uh, converse, conversing with Sarah Rose Cavanaugh, and I hope the rest of you have a great day. 